You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome to the Interactome. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Interactome. For this episode, we're going to be doing another Science Stories. So we've all prepared little stories to... to (laughs) talk through sam stop making faces at me you guys can't see it but sam is making faces at me in the zoom and it's making me nervous (laughs) prepared is a strong word for joe (laughs) well we all have a vague idea on what we're going to talk about and mainly this is just going to be a fun conversation um talking about birds and snails and research um so if you're interested in those things you've come to the right place So just a background, I'm Natalie, Um, I am a co-host on the Interactome, and that's pretty much it, I guess. (laughs) I'm Sam, and I can already tell it's going to be one of those episodes. (laughs) (laughs) I I, uh, am a uh, researcher um, in the uh, biotech and pharmaceutical industry, so uh, I guess I I arguably a researcher, um, but... That's a long story for another day. Um, and uh, last but not least. Oh, yeah. We have me, Joe. Um, uh, yeah, also, obviously, a co-host. But uh, I'm a MD-PhD student over at the University of Pennsylvania um, in the thick of med school right now, but taking a break to talk about some fun science things. So um, I'm looking forward to whatever stories we managed to put together here um yeah <laughs> joe is uh is tired tonight i don't know if you can tell from his voice yeah yeah it, yeah it's it's i'm having a time but um right now it's a good time so let's, let's <laughs> i'm having a time and it's a good time <laughs> yeah um, and i guess they everyone gave background so i'm a communications professional um so I work a nine to five comms job um, and I do this for fun because I love science communication. I love hanging out with my friends. Woo! Yeah, it's 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 funny. Uh, I think with Joe and a few of our other uh, hosts who are in med school, I think I've been learning from a distance that med school has the reputation it has for a reason. Uh, no, but actually. <laughs> uh, so we, we very yeah, much but... appreciate Joe's being here. Um, yeah, yeah, so <laughs> I don't know who wants to go first. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited for my story, so... Uh, yeah, then kick it off. Spill it. I spill think it. Natalie and Joe, you have both been subjected to uh, my story before. Um, in fact, I'm trying to pawn off part of it on, on Natalie if she'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Almost succeeded. Not really. Oh, no. Uh, so the, the uh, I guess I'll start with the strange sentence, which is, I have too many snails. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's where this is coming from. And uh, the, the process of ending up with too many snails has taught me a lot um about biology um so uh i long story short 
a year or so ago came into possession of a fish tank, some fit, well, some fish and some snails, actually not the tank. I had to figure that one out myself, but the, um, <laughs> once, uh, two snails and snails don't live very long. So I, I got another snail at some point and, um, snails are a pretty diverse group of mollusks come to find out. Um, so the particular kind of snail I have is referred to as a mystery snail. It's in the apple snail family, but that's actually... They're not usually referred to by that name in a lot of contexts for some pretty important reasons, but... Can I ask a question? Yeah. So when you say it's a mystery snail, is that the actual species name? Yes. Or is it like a, we don't know what kind of snail... Okay. Yes, it's called a mystery <laughs> snail, and it's also related to the issue with having so many snails so not the issue the reason i have so many snails so the thing you have to know about mystery snails and this is not true of all snails is that they reproduce sexually there are male and female mystery snails and so one would think that this means that you must have two snails in the tank to end up with more snails and furthermore that this only happens with a certain combination of two snails and so when i in my having in my possession only a single mystery snail I was surprised by the sudden mystery of a lot more snails. <laughs> and supposedly, this is actually how they got their name. Um, is that essentially you could end up with a bunch of mystery snails, snails that you don't know where they came from. <laughs> and That's so funny. So the uh, the or the origin of these particular snails is comes from the fact that while there are male and female snails, and my current snail, who I have named Houdini is apparently female. Um, but if they mate once, they can lay those, the eggs resulting from that as many, as much as six months later, I believe. It's like some insane amount of time. And they'll just hold on to that genetic material and then plop out some number of eggs. And then they also lay those eggs out, out of the water. And I have no idea where they were laid. So... There, the fish tank has a cover on it because I didn't want the snail to be able to crawl out because mystery snails, while they are aquatic snails, can live out of water for up to three days, and they will sometimes choose to do so. Houdini, when I put her in the tank, went up to the top of the tank and immediately went out of the water <laughs> when we put her in <laughs> the name Houdini because she was trying to escape. Um, and so I now have a bunch of these little snails, which... The first one I named Tudini because I was being clever. Three Dini doesn't roll off the tongue so much, but I now have uh, N Dinis in my tank. For N is some number greater than eight or nine. Um, and you really have no idea how many are in there. I have no idea. So the thing about them is they when they hatch, they're teeny tiny. So I was reading papers about mystery snail reproduction, and you need a microscope to see the juveniles to begin with. And there's also plants in this tank, so at some point they stop being microscopic, and there's just, like, these little pea-sized snails crawling around this fish tank. And they grow up to be the size slightly larger than a golf ball. So you can understand why having wow. some number in the vicinity of 10 golf balls in a relatively small fish tank would be a problem, let alone the fact that those golf balls are eating and pooping and existing as organisms into themselves. Um, it, it can be kind of an issue. And the the uh, this property of mystery snails... Uh, and I guess this is probably true of some other uh, apple snails, though they didn't do too much digging to that, uh, can lead to some problems, too. So while me trying to figure out who to give these snails to and trying to see if I can convince Natalie to take a small fish tank and a snail is, you know, a, a challenge for me, 
Um, they can also be a challenge in places like India if someone has a pet snail and then it gets loose and then just starts laying eggs everywhere because you end up with these golf ball-sized snails that can live out of water for up to three days, etc., etc., multiplying rapidly through your otherwise pristine ecosystem. Well, maybe not pristine, but definitely would do better with a bunch, without a bunch of giant snails in it. This is not really an issue in the continental United States because temperatures below 50 degrees Fahrenheit will kill them. Uh, so I, they are in a, Houdini is in a heated fish tank and is blissfully unaware of the New England winters. But if, any, if any of these baby snails were to get out, uh, they would suddenly become aware of the New England winters in a big way. Um, and uh, unlike some of my neighbors, would probably not be content wandering around in shorts and drinking a nice coffee. They would be dead. Uh, <laughs> I can just see that being like like a like a meme, like a snail with like a Dunkin's iced coffee, like Photoshop next to it, and like jorts. Like that's just what comes into my mind. For those of you who aren't from New England, particularly those of you who are in climates where a mystery snail might actually fare pretty well, this is in fact what happens in New England. Um, if you ever come here in the winter. <laughs> Uh, and you're not used to those sorts of temperatures, bring a coat. But there are definitely people out there wandering around uh, far less well-dressed. Um, and uh, that that's kind of the beginning of kind of my, my uh, uh, adventures with mystery snails. Um, but I think that, like, having a small organism that you're otherwise unfamiliar with uh, in your house can be an enlightening experience. Um, snails... I think you think about them kind of in pop culture as being slow, sedentary beasts that kind of hang around and don't move very much. And while that's true of some snail species, probably, um, that is not true of mystery snails. I actually once saw a snail jump over a fish. And, like, it just managed... Wait, what? They can contort themselves in all kinds of interesting directions. And so I have these, like, two-inch-long fish in there, which they're a whole other story. But the snail can just kind of warp around it was like it's stuck to the glass on one side and the sand on the other it just kind of shoop, right over the fish and so they they'll book it so like fish tank might be like foot and a half two feet across and like it can go from one end of the tank in like a minute or so like like just they are speedy and voracious eaters um they have rows of uh like a tongue like covered in tiny little teeth which sounds horrifying but it's this ew it just looks like a cute little <laughs> sorry like, but what it's that... really it, it looks just like a cute little mouth like opening and closing against the glass which is like eating algae off of it so it's just like uh-huh. kind of like little pac-man mouth on the bottom of the snail it's really it sounds horrifying um and i will i'm going to uh, tell another favorite story about snails in a second that will make them even more horrifying but um it is it looks almost like a beak so uh, in fact, the beaks on squid are the same sort of structure, but, you know, in the squid family, because they're both mollusks. The radula, the toothy tongue, is the same thing that is a uh, squid's beak. And so with a mystery snail, it almost looks like a little beak that's like scraping against the glass with, and it keeps the fish tank incredibly clean, uh, which is good because I don't really feel like scrubbing algae off of glass. Um, but snails are actually remarkably diverse so like i was saying with these snails there are male and female snails there are other snails that are uh, hermaphrodites so they're they're all the same they've all got the same bits and they'll stab each other with little harpoons to reproduce which is strange so like this like garden snails will like to like make it so that they have like it increases their reproductive success by just poking each other with these little harpoons and another 
terrifyingly lively species of snail is the uh, cone snail, which actually taught a class about it to some, uh, like a one hour long little class to like high school students in uh, back when I was an undergrad. Um, there's a species of snail that uses those radulas and covers them in a cocktail of protein derived poisons that is, can kill a person and they can shoot harpoon, little harpoons at fish and eat them. So there are snails out there that can eat fish, like whole, like, like a, sardine size. How big fish. are those snails? Oh, okay. So it's not like or even like, like I mean, not sardine, like, like a fish that's like, you know, four or five inches long. There's snails. Still a fish. There's those beautiful cone shaped snails that you'll sometimes see like like uh in the tropics. Uh those yeah. cone snails are famous for their ability to hunt fish and uh be poisonous to humans. Uh and those peptides are actually of a lot of interest for things like uh you know non um opioid painkillers and like kind of for their pharmaceutical interest particularly because uh peptides and proteins and things are actually relatively it's relatively well known how to make them in labs so like i've that's kind of the part of the biotech industry that i've been involved in the most is like figuring out how to make proteins so uh it's a very it feels like a very doable thing to get some very interesting compounds but we don't even understand how these snails necessarily what all these parts of these snails do um which is wild because you think of a snail as just this little tiny thing that just you know sits there and moves slowly and just like munches on a piece of lettuce or something and they're actually very lively interesting creatures with very diverse biology um and i think though the one uh last thing that keeps coming up whenever i tell scientists that i have snails is and, and Natalie, I, I don't mean to uh, poke fun at you, but if you remember you what you said when I said I had a bunch of snails, you, did you? What was the problem that you thought I was going to have? I think run out of space. That one, or it, fight each other. There was something. What was it? it I can't you remember. asked where did all the shells come from? <laughs> oh yeah, and you know what's funny? I was gonna ask that again because I forgot what your original answer was. So I did have that question pop up in my head. But they grow with them, right? The, yeah. The shells. Yeah. So like snails are where shells come from, right? They'll grow shells. You have to make sure there's enough calcium in the water so that they can just grow a shell out of dissolved calcium. You know what I think? It. I think I was confusing them with hermit crabs because don't they need shells? Joe, you yeah. have. Joe, I don't know if we've talked about this on this podcast. Joe has the oldest hermit crab of all time. So he'd know. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. The, this, this hermit crab's like, I, he, he's like a nuclear hermit crab. He's, he's survived a lot. Um, yeah, just, just a little, little side note before we get back to the, the uh, actual stories here. Um, this crab, I got him as, or, I got a hermit crab as a uh, secret Santa gift back in high school in 2015. That crab was definitely lonely, so I, I went and got him a friend. And then the first crab died uh, relatively shortly after. And so then I had this other crab who um, has been living with me since then. He is immortal, in my opinion, because um, in captivity... Hermit crabs live an average of two years. In the wild, though, they can live up to 30, maybe even oh, 40 really? years, depending. Um, yeah, I think it depends on the species and a few other things, but it depends on the source you're looking at. But, like, 30 years is, like, the up, the, 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 like, 
max that I've seen a lot. Um, and so, yeah, who knows how long he'll be living. It could be it, when he goes, there may be, a, it may be like a death in the family. Um, but I, I call him Sisyphus because he loves his hamster wheel and he will go up on climb on run around on his little hamster wheel and go up to the top and then kind of like swing back down and keep going <laughs> so kind of like cute. The, it's it's actually even though hermit crabs are kind of gross looking like this is very adorable and um like the um like it's just really funny like how active he is but um in his old age another, too yeah, and I I call him Sisyphus because there's the uh one of the Greek like legends is uh, a guy named Sisyphus um is sent to the underworld and his punishment is that he has to push a boulder up a hill for eternity and every time he gets to the top of the hill the boulder falls back down and he has to go back to the bottom of the hill and push it up again um and so that is my crab um and in this case he's just going to the top of his wheel and back up again but I actually haven't seen him in like three months because he's been uh hiding underground molting. Um, which is something hermit crabs do. They shed their exoskeleton, they eat it, and then they um, they they grow a new one that is larger. It, it, they need to get rid of their exoskeleton so that, that they can grow because their exoskeleton kind of like is hard. And so if you want to grow, you can need to get rid of the hard shell on your outside. Um, so yeah, but I haven't seen him in a while, partly because I think he uh, cut off his own leg at one point. Um, Wait, what? Yeah, I it's oftentimes a sign of stress, but I think he injured himself climbing on the tank and just just like dropped, like he, he has a tendency to just climb on things and just drop himself. Well, from so heights. Snail, he's like um, the ultimate hermit crab death he, drop. Like, snails lose oh, too. He death drops so hard. Do, do yeah. they really? Yeah, snail? they'll climb. They'll climb the side of the tank. They'll just let go and they'll like fall down. Yeah, but this in yeah. water though. So uh, this is a land hermit crab you have, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean they they do need water. Um salt water and fresh water. Story for another time. But um I think in this case he may have fallen and injured himself. Um and he needed to remove this damaged leg. Um and now he is probably growing a new one. Um so yeah. Hermit crabs are wild. Um so yeah, like there's the the coconut crab, which is the largest one. It's like I don't know, like two feet wide. I might be slightly incorrect about that. But, like, they use actual coconuts as their shells, which That's is, hilarious. like, wild. Um, but, yeah. So, enough about hermit crabs. Sorry. Back to the, back oh, to no. The, I, I got a question about hermit crabs now. Yes. I was going to say, like, just, <laughs> so two things. One is, like, I just want to comment that, like, snails, the snails I have will live, like, two years. But I think they live longer in captivity than in the wild, probably. But, like, probably. have you been taking notes on how you're taking care of this hermit crab? Like, maybe everyone doing it in captivity is just doing it wrong and you're doing it right. I mean, that is... Well, I was gonna say oh, like sorry? that is not inconceivable. That there's something about the way you're taking care of it that's different. Oh well, maybe I literally just change his substrate every six months. I give him food. I give him water, fresh water and salt water, and literally just leave him alone. And that's hmm. like I I think he's just he's just like like a nuclear hermit crab. That is that is <laughs> he just that is my he opinion. just got good. He just got good. Um. Unless, unless people, nobody's continuously feeding or watering their hermit crabs, which is definitely possible. So, say because snails don't really need much; they'll eat the junk off of the tank. So, they're very, 
maybe, maybe people are just like, yeah, hermit crab. It's a invertebrate. It'll just eat stuff. What if crab? Like maybe. maybe most people, the average is just like weighted by all the crabs. Where people are just like, what do snails don't eat? I mean, it's a lot. hermit crabs don't need to eat things. What what substrate? I'll just keep them in a, a, a uh, just a flat tank with nothing to dig into. Who knows? I also imagine <laughs> that a lot of hermit crab owners are like children mm. who get them at like the county fair. They are, and then they forget yeah. about them a week later. Oh, yeah, right. Probably. My, my bro- Joe, you should write a book. I'm you should write you. a book. My brother's got a, a fish I from will. the county fair that le- that has lived. About it's about the same age as your uh, hermit crab. Who's he was from Amazing. the little county, the, the, just the fair in the town that Joe and I grew up in, and. My parents mm. also had installed a reverse osmosis water filter at the same time. So I think like one thing that'll happen is tap water is really hazardous to animals living in it because we treat tap water to keep stuff from growing in it. Like, cause you know, you'd prefer to drink water that things aren't just rapidly growing in and our bodies are more capable of filtering things out than something that's just literally living in it. You know, it's, we're just drinking water along with a bunch of other things, but a, you know, that's what a fish breathes too. So it's a, uh, Definitely uh, a potential factor there, but I don't know how that impacts hermit crabs. Uh, they need... Uh, well, you can't really just do tap water because the heavy yeah. metals actually damage their gills and make it hard for them to breathe. And I bet a bunch uh, of people so, just use tap yeah. water. That's the thing. Some people do, I would imagine. But um, yeah, don't I do guess, that. I guess the takeaway from this <laughs> segment is if you have a animal that's not just like a cat or a dog or something definitely look into whether or not tap water will kill it um there's not to say that tap water is dangerous but tap water is for humans right it is it is meant Mm -hmm. to keep humans healthy and our bodies are way different than that of a fish or a crab or a i imagine lizards and spiders and snakes are probably have their own special requirements yeah right i think that's most of what i had to say about snails but well, I loved that. And Joe, I loved your little side note. Told you you'd have things, <laughs> right? Joe's making a face at me right now. He's like, yeah, you're right, Natalie. I know. Um, okay. So I'm going to jump into my science story. So originally, I I don't know if you can tell by my voice, but I've got the sniffles a little bit. You know, allergy. It's allergy season. It was kicking up. And I was like, okay, I'm going to research my science story. It's going to be all about, I think it's like histamines, right? Isn't that what allergies are? Or don't they relate to allergies? Or, uh, yeah, they're, they're one of the chemical messengers that are involved in the like allergic response. Well, clearly I so, didn't look into yeah. those because I'm asking you what they are. Um, and so <laughs> I, over the weekend, I visited some family in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I've got a cousin that lives out there. And my family is one of those families that's, like, super into hikes. Like, we always do nature walks um, anytime we get together, and it's a big group of us. And so we were on this little nature walk, um, like, through this conservation center. And um, you could hear all, like, the birds. You know, birds are – I'm a big birder, too, just for background. Like, I'm literally obsessed with birds. Um, (laughs) And – we're in the woods and all of a sudden you hear like a woodpecker, right? Like you've all heard like a it's a, a woodpecker is a, such a distinct when it's drilling, right? You've definitely heard it. Um, and it kind of it catches your attention because it's not like the typical bird call. And I was sitting there and I was like, how do woodpeckers not get concussions? Because I, like 
how how can they even just drill it like what is the biomechanics behind that because my cousin when we were visiting had a concussion and he was telling me all about that and I'm like oh my gosh so concussions were just on the on my mind so I was like why don't I do some digging and I did some research and um, I'm going to tell you what I found. So woodpeckers use their drilling not just for finding food, but for nesting, for finding a mate, for establishing territory, and even communication. So they'll use pecking as a call. So it's like very instrumental to what they do. And a woodpecker's head strikes with at least 1,000 times the force of gravity. Yet the woodpecker experiences no harm. I was expecting jaw drops. I didn't see them on the Zoom, so I'm just going to keep going. I, I, I'm struggling to process that. I, I was just I know, trying to do the, the math as to what that is in, that, that what that is in, like, I don't know, some kind of units. Should I think, like, what's... It's, it's a lot of units. I didn't do any math, um, but... Is that is that the um, G's, <laughs> G-forces experienced by the woodpecker's head? Um, or is that the... Yeah. Well, yeah. The G force. It looks like it's in my notes. It says one thousand G. Oh, really? Yeah. Yikes! That Fun. that's yeah. That'll end poorly for a human. I know exactly. That. Like a human would like half of that. Like a human would die. Like you half. can't. And they like, and they. I know. Like way more than half. I'm yeah. Like anyway. like I think uh, it's like <laughs> ten Gs a human can withstand sustained or something like that. Maybe twenty. There's like so yeah. way less than half. Um, and they can do this um, 20 times per second. Like they'll peck 20 times per second and have no impact. Like they like, and honestly, I highly recommend while I was doing my research, go and look at slow motion woodpeckers. It's so funny watching their head like, because of course, like their head moves and you can see like the force like on it. It's, it's honestly hilarious. I think I need to look at this. Yeah. Um, if you're listening and you're not driving or if you're at a computer, um definitely look it up and if you're driving and so, at a computer i'm judging you right now <laughs> um you're breaking the law stop it um and for a while scientists thought that it was just all shock absorption like it was like oh they must just be able to like absorb the shock like in their skulls and in their beaks like that's um that's what it must be in order for them to be able to tolerate that but a paper from last year found that this isn't the case and shock absorption isn't needed to protect them from concussions. So the paper found that because woodpeckers are smaller than humans, yes, they have a greater ability to withstand higher decelerations. So a, Interesting. yeah, so a decrease in momentum in their brain size. So because they're smaller, their brain size protects them from getting concussions relative to their size in order to get a concussion or to have brain damage they would need to hit the wood twice as fast Hmm. so they've really evolved to kind of have this um perfect you know execution of drilling um that doesn't cause them any harm at all and in fact um absorbing shocks would decrease the pecking performance so you don't want like so it like deep disproves the original original theory. Huh. And it's more than just their skulls. So it that's not um or like their size, there's more to that um that protects them. There are a bunch of little um parts of their physiology that also assist with their with their pecking. So their beaks are chiseled like. So um you guys I 
I'm not a woodworker. I had to look up what a chisel is, but it's oh, like really? that flat. <laughs> yes. Um, that flat, like, and jump in if you have a better description, but it it's not like it's not like stabbing something with a pen, like a pointed yeah. object, right? It's like flatter mm-hmm. and just look it up. It's like when you're it's like a flathead screwdriver, but made for stabbing at things as opposed to if you're trying to pry something open with a screwdriver. If you ever tried to do that and you've chipped it, well, you're in good company. I've got a few broken screwdrivers lying around. <laughs> the chisels, you know, made to it's like a big, thick, kind of somewhere between a crowbar and a screwdriver, I would say. Thank you. Yeah. Very helpful. Um, I would not have described it that way. Um, so their beak is shaped <laughs> that way as opposed to other birds where like their beak, like sparrows or something, where their beak is super pointed. Um, and woodpeckers have the creepiest tongue you've ever seen in your life. Their tongue <laughs> wraps around their entire skull. It is so long for one breed of woodpecker. I think I didn't write this down in my notes. Oh, but there's one good. breed. Of, I googled it's, it. It's so bizarre, and I didn't even know that. Like that, it's it's very um, very much like an anteater tongue. So right when they're drilling, um, it's really hard to get the insects that are like way in the tree. Right, if they're hunting termites. So the tongue helps them to reach way into the tree and the edge of their tongue has like little spikes on it that are, their saliva is extra sticky and it can grab the insects and just suck them back just like an anteater. So when they're drilling, they're kind of, they're doing that as well. Um, And uh, yeah, the tongue wrapping around their skull actually adds extra protection against the drilling. Um, it like soften, it helps soften the blow or decreases the, um, the blow to the head or, or something like that. I, there, it's really intense biomechanics around it. I'm not a biomechanic person. Um, but if you want to have nightmares, look up a woodpecker tongue. It's like, it looks like it's like a harness, like go running from their nose yes. through their face, back through the front of their face. So like like yep. like it's like it wraps around the back of their head like some kind of weird like bungee cord. It's almost like like how the straps in a Halloween mask could go. I was like I just looked at it. It's, it's really weird. <laughs> like, yeah, it's so weird. Um, and I read about one species. I didn't put this in my notes, but I think its tongue is like three times the length of its body. Like they're insane. Like they're so long. Um, and each woodpecker breed has different tongue specialties like the northern flicker their tongue is way flatter and i think that helps them um kind of get into crevices more ornithologists are listening to this and they're like this girl is butchering this story yeah um, i looked i look i think it might be one third the size of their body but uh okay there's a three in there somewhere i didn't yeah, put it in my notes but don't quote me on that but but woodpeckers can be pretty big so that's still a really long tongue yeah Um, and so you might be thinking like, why, like, why did they evolve like this? What's the point? Um, and so some theories suggest food scarcity. So millions of years ago, um, there's a lot of competition for food, for nesting, um, all that kind of stuff. So woodpeckers slowly started, um, you know, they didn't evolve to what they are today overnight, but, um, their ancestors started pecking at, trees to get that untapped insect food source under the bark of the trees and then they you know the drilling just advanced and um 
this food source was inaccessible to other birds. Um, and so millions of years later, we have the modern woodpecker. And um, as time went on, they got more and more specialized. So the International Ornithological Committee now recognizes 239 species of woodpecker. Wow. Mm-hmm. I butchered some of that, but I found that very interesting. Oh, yeah. Right. No, this is this is wild. Yeah, you're looking at two now, Joe? Yeah, I, I, I don't understand how the woodpecker tongue actually, like, extends. It literally, like, it like, goes out and then it comes back from the head. Like, that's wild. it's so wild. Yeah, I looked up a, a demonstration of it, it, or, like, an image. It's like the tongue starts and ends in the place you expect the tongue to, uh, like, end up. But just like going through Boston, you can start on one end of trying to get, like, in one part of the city and trying to get to another place very close and you happen to go around the entire friggin' city to get there. It's like that, but yep. with a tongue. <laughs> like, it's just like, like from Boston, it goes know. from the nose to the mouth by way of the back of the head. <laughs> um, how long is, like, what does a human tongue look like? I'm going to look that up. It's Because, like, how, how far back do ours go? Joe, would you know? I mean... Our tongue kind of goes down into our throat a little bit. It kind of like basically ends right at the like, little full, like the little epi- the epiglottis, the little thing that like covers your like uh, your trachea, your air hole um, that goes to your lungs when you swallow. Hmm. Um, interestingly, there's some taste receptors on your epiglottis itself, um, but. Um, yeah, it it goes down into our throat instead of up and wrapping around our brains, which um, major distinction. Major distinction. Yeah. So our tongues end about where you expect them to end. <laughs> it's the nice little, yeah. nice little slide in your mouth. It goes down to exactly where you'd expect the tongue to end up, which is the the part of your body that decides. The epiglottis is that the part that decides. Whether or not it's air or not air, wait. Can, can so like, so like, there's I, like, I, there's a thing that's like normally if you're just breathing, it's like the path is open to your lungs, and then there's like a little thing like it comes down, so you yeah. don't end up with yeah. you know, you know, green bean casserole in your lungs. In theory, at least, yeah, yes, okay. um, yeah, the epiglottis, the little air hole flap, um, very important. You want that to work. I would assume. I like to yes. breathe when I want to breathe and yes. eat when I want to eat, not the other way around. Yeah. It's hard to breathe while you're swallowing. So, yeah, just make sure you try not to do those two things at the same time. Now I'm gonna. No, Natalie. Please we don't need joke. You alive. Yeah, I guess uh, I could share my little story. This this one is a bit different. It's not really science-y per se. Um but it has to do with the soft side of science, like soft skills, networking, uh, really bringing up the next generation. And I think it's like this this side of science is the side that is not really talked about nearly as much as it should be. Um, and it's equally, if not more so important than the actual like scientific method. Uh, like really like, in my personal opinion, like science is a way of understanding and interpreting the world. And uh, certainly, like like any other way of understanding and interpreting the world beyond like explicit 
like sensory information, in my personal opinion, it needs to be taught. And so um, it uh, certainly there are many other ways to make sense of the world and science is just one of them. But um, like it's really, really important that in if you're in the sciences, you have good mentors who can teach you how to be a scientist and how to think scientifically um, and also just help you get to where you want to go. Um, and so um, I think maybe we should actually long at some point, like have an episode focused on mentoring and mentorships and things like that. But um, for now, um, I'll just kind of share, like there was, there was a time where I was really, I wanted to learn, like learn about like what it was like to shadow a doctor and what it was like to do, work in like a biomedical research lab and things like that. And um, I was really struggling to find opportunities. Um, I went to, uh, this is really funny. I went to a insurance company in town that worked with some doctors and I was like, hey, <laughs> please connect me. I wanna, I wanna shadow someone. Like I was that desperate. Um, Pulling and, out all the stops, honestly. Like that kind of grit yeah. is impressive though. Yeah, there, there was like, it was very challenging to like, I really didn't know anyone who was like an actual doctor, um, in my, uh, like in my own life, um, beyond the doctors that I actually like met in the clinic. Like I didn't know anyone like in my social network who did anything medicine related besides a cousin who I hadn't seen that much at the time. Um, and I really honestly didn't even know that she was a doctor at this point in my career i guess not that my career has really uh taken off too much yet but um i ended up connecting with someone who worked in like a kind of a at a uh, medical slash research institute through my old boy scout troop um and this guy uh was kind enough after um multiple like relatively intense interviews and conversations um to um take me on a tour of this um research institute that he worked at um and where i'm he was going to try and connect me with a doctor to shadow um and while we were there we were walking around the floor and he was showing me a bunch of the research labs and this was like my first time that i'd been in like a big like how old were you research institute um i was this was actually, uh, this was a sophomore year of college. Oh. Um, so yeah, I like, I'd, I'd been in like industry stuff before, but like, I knew that I wanted to do like biomedicine, biomedicine, like academic, like biomedical research. And this was my first time being in a place where I could do that. Could, could you define um, biomedicine? So I think I'm, I'm wondering, cause I know you had done work in a laboratory setting prior to this. Yeah, so I had done work in like standard like academic labs, like just biology labs that did biology stuff like for the sake of doing like understanding biology, which certainly these kinds of labs also do, but there's more, it's the end goal I think is a little different. Um, and so like in previous labs, it was either to understand uh, like, for example, like how does the specific protein work? And that was the right. end goal. Um, or like, how can we turn this, like, for example, uh, when I was working uh, over at New England Biolabs, how can we uh, take this 
understanding that we have a biology and turn it into a product or a tool that can be used to probe biology. Okay. Um, but in this context, I want to work in a lab where they're like, we're going to understand biology and we're going to try and use it to find a way to help patients. And to that to me um, was like something very different then certainly like if you just look at biology in general like obviously all of that fits underneath and different people have different opinions about how different those things are but for me like this was my first opportunity to be in a lab where the end goal was that mm. um what's up what's up uh, oh, i was Sam, just curious because like i should clarify like when i said like at the beginning i was like i arguably a researcher i i've moved to like development which is a whole nother yeah. category of thing um but, like, depending, but, like, I still think, like, what I do is supposed to help patients. And what I've done in yeah, pharmaceutical companies in the past, when I was interning places, I was mm-hmm. doing stuff that was supposed to help patients. So I guess what I'm thinking about is, like, when yeah. I was in a laboratory um, that was, you know, trying to develop therapeutics, is that what you're thinking of as biomedicine? Is that, like... Anything with some kind of clinical clinical connotation okay. or clinical so, end goal. That's kind of how I'm defining All right. it right now. Um, but so, like, so um, the, the really thinking about, and I, obviously like other people have slightly different definitions, but when I, when I think of biomedicine, I really think of the medicine part of it. Um, and that's probably my own bias. So I, I would classify what you do as biomedicine okay. as well. Um, or, or in doing biomedical research. Um, but in like, I really like I, in, at previous labs, I was lucky enough to have mentors who, um, taught me, but they also explicitly said, "Hey, if you're interested in doing a MD-PhD program, you really need to do like biomedical research um, and see what that's actually like." So, what's and the so, difference? Uh, um, the end, the end goal. Oh, okay. okay, of the work, like so explicitly, like what, like what kinds of research questions are we asking? Okay. Like certainly, like can we can we turn this into a therapy for patients? And like is different from can we turn this into a product to sell? Okay, I'm getting um, confused because it's the bio and then the M, and I'm getting mixed up. So yeah. I, I, I'm still I'm okay now. Now I'm confused again because, like, yeah, go ahead. And this is this depends on the a, a company's philosophy, for example. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, corporate pharmaceutical stuff is biomedicine, yeah. but yeah, it's also love- product focused, right? Like. It's it's you have both. A yeah, but I had I had no, so yeah I had not had an experience in uh, like pharmaceuticals at all, nor just pure like uh, we're understanding this for us. Okay, so like the, so, the distinctions between all of that stuff and the stuff I was doing in grad school, where I was like I'm characterizing a protein for the purpose of characterizing a protein. That's the distinction yes. you're making. I'm sorry for yes. being very confused about this. I'm oh no no it's it yeah. <laughs> don't don't apologize. I think it uh it's an it, it's an idea that I had not really explicitly defined for myself prior yeah. to this. So and I like I think it's still vague and hard to define for people even in whatever we call biomedicine. But basically, I wanted to do research that was going to directly help patients, whether it was going to be eventually also profitable or not. Um, and so this was my first potential opportunity to even like step foot into a lab that really was doing that, like connect physically connected to a hospital, people who were going to um, like doing research 
in these labs were explicitly like going and also working in the clinic and things like that. And that was super cool. And so when um, this, this guy and I were walking around the labs and he was showing me, um, it, it turned out that he was running late for a meeting. And I was like, hey, um, you should just like go to your meeting. Like, thanks so much for showing me around. I'll just head out. And he said, no, this is the most important part of my day. That um, is so cute. And, oh my gosh. And it, it, it was really like, like this big, this big, like science and medicine guy, like to me, like a giant in the giant, a giant in the field, um, like was, it was very clear, like in that moment, the most important thing was kind of helping the next generation get their foot in the door. And I think that to me, like is something that's incredibly important. And that was just like a, now when I have like, I, I'm mentoring a few students and they uh, like, I'm helping them find jobs after college, like uh, short term, like two to three year research jobs before they go on to a, uh, like another like degree, like an MD or a PhD, or or if they choose to stay in that kind of research position. Um, and sometimes they're like, Joe, I'm so sorry for taking up so much time. And I'm like, don't worry. This is the most important part of my day. You're paving the and way. So, You're like passing yeah, the torch. But, yeah. And that's explicitly what a lot of science is or what a lot of what it should be in some contexts. And like, so the, the, that, that, mentoring aspect is a mindset that I think is really important for scientists to have because you can't solve all the problems on your own, nor can you understand everything on your own. And it's going to take hundreds of thousands of years, maybe to even understand like a, a small portion of like everything that exists in the world. And so we need more people to do that. And yeah. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, but it, I think it's just a really powerful short little anecdote yeah it's a powerful me, message that w- yeah yeah and re- really like that that moment was kind of like i i see it as a significant inflection point in my development as a physician scientist and if if i truly choose to do that but like at least getting to an mbphd program um and like there were people who are willing to help me along the way and like i'm gonna try and do the same for other people and hopefully those people will do the same for the next people and that's how it's supposed to be, and certainly we should try and ensure that that kind of um, that kind of uh, assistance and mentorship is distributed uh, fairly uh, for everyone. Like it, it can't always just be like, "Oh, I have this connection to this person." Right. Like we got to reach out to people who need that mentorship or who want it, who don't necessarily have it otherwise. Um, but it's it's critical. So. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. But you but don't even like really you're saying you don't know where you were going, but like you, there's a story there. Like you, you literally there. told the whole story. You went there. <laughs> you went there, girl. Don't even worry about it. I, I guess we did. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that that's so important. Like, um, I've had kind of a circuitous path lately through kind of the biosciences space, but. Um, I think early on, I think like you talked about mentorship, I, uh, was lucky enough to have a internship at, uh, Harvard. There was a professor there who was like doing like these like summer 
to take on interns over the summer, like from like a bunch of schools around the area. And um, I guess it was actually after that he had a few of us, like a few other interns, and I came back for this, like help him prep stuff for classes. Um, and I, I'm, he's like very into outreach. I'll, I'll mention his name. His name's uh, I think it's like Doctor. I, I think Alan Viel is how you pronounce his name. We could never quite nail the pronunciation but um he uh at one point we were using we were like helping him i think like prepare kimchi so like the fermented korean cabbage dish like there was a we were taking like commercially available kimchi and sequencing what species were present in it and uh at one point he gets the data back and he's looking at it like we're looking at the next week and he's like huh you know, that there's this species in, you know, the cabbage kimchi and there's like, I think there was like carrot or something. And there's like, and it's not in this one. He's like, he's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And we're like, it does. He goes, actually, no, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and like, it's, he, he's a very, very smart uh, person. And he's advised on a lot of projects that probably, honestly, at this point, you know, a lot of people have probably seen, but um, he's not an expert on kimchi. And it was really funny to see this guy who, uh, I, I really respect kind of be like, yeah, I actually don't know everything I'm talking about. I'm kind of figuring stuff out too. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll be at work and I'll be like, looking at a thing. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. Or like, you know, in any lab, it's like, okay, but that's normal. That's the scientific process. Not knowing is really important. Um, and it was just like this very one-off moment. Uh, he probably wouldn't even remember it. And I'm sitting here like that to me is one of the most important things is to see people, who you really respect in science who are really capable of being like, yeah, I, I don't know everything. <laughs> like why, yeah. why, why should I know about cabbage? You know, like it's like there's someone else who's that's their area of expertise. And uh, to really, uh, you know, I think that, like hear that from someone at those highest levels, it, it uh, has always taught me that that's like what good scientific mentorship looks like and what good science looks like. So it's the same idea. Same like, yeah, mentorship's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, that professor was talking about he was doing mentoring he understood the importance of mentorship um but like i've always thought going forward like if i talk to a scientist and sometimes i'll ask some question that pops in my head and uh the the best scientists i've been kind of always willing to say that they don't know or you know try to mm-hmm. work through the problem uh which is just so yeah underappreciated so i was thinking about that as you were telling your story joe i was like that this is a oh yeah a, a great story because the end of the day the most important part of science is you know how we, we interact with each other and how we t- teach each other how to do it and uh you know i think some people are better than others and it's really really important to know that like you can't you're not going to know everything and you should focus on mentoring people and working through stuff and yeah i just thought that was your story is super great it made me think of uh, one of my own so yeah 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 and i think the other thing is that um like for 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 those of you listening like in my personal opinion like this kind of thing like just how important mentor good mentors are is true regardless of what field you're in uh, regardless of where you are whether you're a like a like construction worker or in business or policy or whether you are like i don't know mining like literally anything <laughs> um uh, like you really you need people who can teach you and who can guide you and keeping an eye out for the, the good ones is really important and like they won't always necessarily tell you exactly what you want to hear but they're really going to tell you what you need to hear in a 
in a kind and constructive way um, in theory. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that one, but I think maybe we've got that. That <laughs> <laughs> seems to be the theme of uh, your night, Joe. Yeah. That, yeah, I, I, I kind of, I'm just one big tangent today, but that's okay. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in to listen to our science stories. You can find us um, on Twitter at, at the Interactome, um, on Instagram at Interactome underscore media. And in our Twitter, you can also get our link tree, which send us sends you to our website our spotify everywhere you can get your podcasts all that kind of jazz um let us know what you thought of this episode feel free to reach out um and if you have like other science stories or ideas that you kind of want to share um you should and you should just reach out to us and we can all be besties so uh i know this is science story came i think pretty quick on the heels of the other one we have a lot of guests and things lined up but you know yeah yeah uh this is kind of the way things have worked out the schedule right now. And, uh, you know, let us know too, if you happen to, uh, know anyone who'd be a cool guest or like, if, if the, we've definitely had certainly friends be like, I need to be on the podcast and <laughs> it happens eventually. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, well, we're not going to necessarily give you the essential opportunity for mentorship. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I think, the whole point of this is sharing those stories with the world too, just like, you know, those mentors and everything else. And hopefully someday we can be half as good as those people are uh, and half as good as Joe is to his uh, mentees. Right. All right, folks. Well, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.